Love you so much. Y'all come on in if you uh, are back there. Uh, uh, we're starting a little late today because uh, um, uh, we're late getting started. Um, that's lawyer logic for you. Um, you. Sound like you're saying something when you're saying nothing at all. Um, if you need a lesson, raise your hand. I'm really pumped about this lesson today. And uh, so let's get into it. Uh, I uh, wrote this lesson, um, and there's a lot of history between me and Boethius. Boethius, when I was, I tried to figure it out, I think I was in high school when I bought a book, on Boe- uh, a book by Boethius called The Constellation of Philosophy. And I tried to read it, and it just absolutely made no sense to me. And I decided, I'm just, I I don't know. I mean, it just absolutely made no sense to me. So it sat on my dusty shelves for a long, long time. But uh, 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 today, I want to try and make sense of Boethius for all of us. And I entitled the sermon after I sat down on Friday with some of my biblical confidants, including scholars of the like of Charles Mickey. And uh, uh, as I said, you know, I think I'm going to teach on Boethius Sunday you know, Charles says, well, I know Boethius, but I'm trying to remember who the heck he is. And everybody else didn't even know him. So I decided the appropriate title. I went immediately from there and started typing out the lesson, and it just seemed to flow. Who was Boethius, and why do we care? And so that is uh, the title for this lesson, and I hope when this is done, you'll know who Boethius is, and you'll know why you care. Um, now, <clears throat> I thought I might start real smart and ask, who knows Anaceus Manlius Severinus Boethius? Anybody? Would it help if I showed you his picture? Okay, still maybe a close-up. A close-up might help. Well, actually, we're not sure that's his picture. That's a picture that came from a 1700 woodcut uh, edition of some of Boethius' writings. Um, maybe I'm approaching this the wrong way. Do we have anybody here who's a member of the International Boethius Society? I know for $30 a year, you can become a member. If you're not, it is a, you, you get with the membership a subscription to the Carmina Philosophiae. It's an interdisciplinary journal that's devoted to the study of Boethius. Still not ringing a bell, huh? Okay, clearly Boethius is not that big in Houston, Texas or the Southern Baptist Church tradition. So I think what we need to do is get out our clipboards and get to work. Here are the three things I want to do with Boethius today. First, ask when did he live? We're going to put it into a historical context. Also serves as a little review each time we do that. Then we're going to talk about why he's important. And finally, we're going to ask what happened to him. And we'll finish his life at that point in time. So let's start with the question, when did he live? Now, to put it into context of Boethius, I want to do it in two respects. I want to look at the political context of when he lived, what was going in the world as far as politics and government. And I also want to make sure that we're caught up on what was relevant in church doctrine issues at the time of Boethius. If we're going to understand his contributions to our world... We need to understand the context in which he lived so that we understand what he did. Is that that fair enough? So we're going to start with the politics. This is uh, uh, some review. Don't go to sleep on me. Just remember this stuff. And I always try to add a little bit of extra when we do the review. So you're getting a little extra church history here. This, again, is our Roman Empire. 
Roman Empire, the first emperor was Caesar Augustus, who was emperor at the time of Christ. And things rocked along fine until the early 300s when Diocletian decided he needed to divide the empire in half because it was just too big. So he did so for ruler purposes. It reunited under Constantine, but it never really reunited for good. We had the East and we had the West. And that's the way civilization declined. By the way, we are part of which branch? Right. This is called the Western civilization. America is part of the Western civilization. This is where it comes from. Okay? So we have a Western tradition here in America because we inherited it, by and large, from Europe. And Europe became Western civilization. So the West is over here. The East is considered more Asian or Oriental, actually. I think Asian's a, a pejorative at this point in time. But this is what we have. We have the East and the West. And this is the way it is as it's going into the 400s. After Constantine, things are divided. You've got East and West. What's north of the Roman Empire? They're the Goths. Okay, they don't dress in black like Gothic people do now in high school with black fingernails and all. That's a, a new usage of the word. But the original Gothic folks um, were up north of the Roman Empire. And uh, uh, in the 400s, the Goths started getting booted out of their land because the Huns were headed over from uh, the Orient. And as the Goths get booted out, they start infiltrating and coming in especially to the west. They did to the east a little bit, but not as pronounced as they did in the west. And in the west, the Goths start coming down and even manage to sack Rome in 410 A.D. So in the 400s, the west is getting really hit up by the, the, the Goths. And here's what happens. Let's see if this works. You see that? Did you see what happened to west? Look at that. Yeah, it's getting smaller and it's fading. Okay? Look at that. Bam. Bam. Those goths, they're coming at it. Bam. Okay, not only that, but down here south of Africa, in this area right here, are vandals. They cause a lot of vandalism. That's where we get the word from. They would sack, pillage, rape, plunder, okay? The vandals are down here, and they're attacking up in Africa. And the more the vandals would attack and the more the Goths would attack, do you know what would happen to the West? Yeah, it, it fade and get smaller even. See, that's even smaller than the last one. And eventually, the, 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 the West is almost down to nothing. The emperors aren't really Roman emperors anymore. What happens is you've got emperors in the West and you've also got now the Pope. We were dealing with this with Pope Leo the last two weeks, really, uh, in Rome. And, and the more the Goths would come in and the more the Vandals would come in and the more the West would fade away, the smaller and less powerful the emperor got. Because he was, he was almost buying his way out of trouble all the time. He didn't have the soldiers to protect his empire. He didn't have the soldiers to protect his cities. He didn't have what it took. And the smaller the emperor got, and this was our lesson last week, what happened to the pope? The more powerful the pope got. Because the pope actually took over so many functions of what the emperor was supposed to do. The pope was feeding the, the sick 
and the needy. And the Pope was providing structure and stability. And the church was providing stability in a society that was crumbling. Now, that's politics. By the way, by 476, see it down here? The emperor, he's gone. There is no more Roman emperor in Western civilization after 476. I'm not saying they didn't have emperors. They didn't have people who kind of claimed it later. But for all practical purposes, you've hit the Middle Ages. The Roman Empire in the West is gone. 476. Okay? Now, 476, we're moving the Goths down here because it's a Gothic king for at least Italy in 476. It's now no longer an emperor. The Goths are ruling Italy as king. So, that's politics. Boethius is going to be born four years later in 480. So that's the political structure. Roman emperor gone, civilization being held together by a thread in the West. Gothic king. Now let's look at church doctrine. Um, church doctrine, the important thing I want you to remember right now is the issue of Arianism. You've got to go back to the 300s to, to remember this. But do you remember who the Arians were? We've got some folks that have started since then. I'm going to remind you. Arians were the ones who did not think that Jesus Christ was God. They thought that God had made Jesus. The Council of Nicaea established in verbal form the doctrine of the Trinity for Orthodox Christianity. But, but the Arians thought that Jesus had been created by God. And the net result of that is, after Nicaea, if you were an Arian... You were a heretic. And do you know what would happen to the Arians? They got kicked out, right? They got sent into exile. They got excommunicated. You've got bishops. I mean, major church teachers who are Arians. And they get... They, you know, you don't just take... You know, if, if Louis Miori, who counsels probably half of this church... If the church decides one day that Lewis has become an absolute heretic who is serving Satan, you don't just leave him in his job to counsel us, okay? You don't just take away his job, you try to get him out of the church. Because you could leave him, take his job away, but leave him in the church and people are still going to flock around him because of all the help he's given him in his life, right? So what they would do with heretic bishops is not just excommunicate them. The emperor, the Roman emperor, would exile them. He'd kick them out of the Roman Empire. So do you know where all these Arian bishops went? They went to the Goths. Or they went to the Vandals. And the Goths and the Vandals get converted to Arianism. So they're Arians. So now, there's a little tension for you. The Pope's running Western civilization when a Gothic king comes in and the Gothic king is an Arian who's a heretic who doesn't think that uh, I, the, Vandals, the Vandals run the Catholics out of all of their churches. And they say, ha, 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 tables turned. You're excommunicated and exiled. See ya. And they kick out all the Catholics in Africa. Catholics come back. That's another story for another class. But this is the problem that we have from a 
religious perspective right now. Your Goths and your Vandals are Aryans. And when your Goths come in and start taking over Rome, they come in as Aryans by and large. This is the status of things when Boethius... Let's get back to him. Come on, come on, come on. Be nice. Bam. Okay, it's not being nice. When Boethius is born, around 480. Okay? Now, let me tell you about Boethius. That's number one off the checklist. We've now put him into context. Let me tell you the story of this fellow. Really interesting. He's born into a family that had been Christians for a hundred years. It's a very wealthy family, a very influential family. His dad was a major political heavyweight in Rome. Rome itself, at about the time, actually a little before Boethius is born, Rome itself is no longer where the emperor, they don't have one now, or the king was sitting. Earlier, the king had moved up north to Milan, and then when Milan was about to get tackled by all of the Goths coming in, moved over to Ravenna, which is... Uh, uh, I guess I'm pointing the wrong way. It would be over here just under Venice on the coast because it was surrounded by swamps and lagoons. They thought it was an easier way to defend the king or the emperor. So while the Roman Senate still sits in Rome, the, the, the big political seat is up in Ravenna. But Boethius is born. His father dies when he's seven years old. I don't want to embarrass anybody. Don't hold your hand up if it embarrasses you. Uh, anybody in here whose parent, who had a parent die at a very early age? Okay, a number of you. Um, uh, I was very blessed. My mother's still alive. My father passed away a couple of years ago. So I, I had the, the, the glorious blessing of living with him. Uh, Becky's brother passed away a couple of years ago, leaving uh, three uh, small children. And uh, that's just tough. That's heart-wrenching. And I think about little Boethius. We don't know anything about his mom, but his dad dies when he's seven years old. Tough age not to have a father. Tough hand to be dealt. And what's neat is another leading citizen in Rome, a good Christian man from a good Christian family, Symmachus, adopts him. And Symmachus treats him as his own. The relationship is an extremely close relationship for Boethius all of his life. Symmachus sees that Boethius gets a great education and that his career has a great takeoff. Boethius studies and learns. He's got a mind that won't quit. He studies the classics. This is at a time where Western civilization, most of them don't speak Greek anymore. Most of them don't read Greek. In fact, the Pope is having trouble getting people to translate what's going on in the Greek end of the church into Latin so he can understand it. It's a very difficult language barrier. Once the peace of Rome had been destroyed by the Goths and the Vandals, you don't have ready transportation between major cities anymore. It's not safe to travel on the highways and the byways. It's not safe to get out and about. There's not ready trade. And, and, and the communication that, that, that was natural at the height of the Roman Empire is disintegrating as well, and small pockets are developing of culture, but society has crumbled on an international scale. Does that make sense? Boethius somehow gets this incredible education, and he starts getting jobs that are phenomenal. 
In just his late 20s, Boethius becomes consul of Rome. That's like mayor. Okay? He's like the mayor of Rome. That's a big-time job for a guy in his late 20s. Um, you know? So this guy, he's really arriving. He's got a great mind. He's got a great attitude. And Symmachus, his stepfather, not stepfather, his adopted father, has three daughters, gives one of them to Boethius to marry. That tells me a lot about Boethius. Because I've got four daughters and I'm not planning on letting any of them get married. <laughs> Boethius... Boethius gets one of Symmachus' daughters as a wife and has two incredible sons. Both of his sons grow up loving God, his wife thoroughly devoted to the Lord. The other two daughters of of, uh, Symmachus, they became nuns. So it's apparent to me Boethius was the only one that was there worth giving a daughter to, okay? I'm thinking about turning Catholic just to turn my daughters into nuns. <laughs> then I'll become Protestant again, be back here teaching the next Sunday. But get them in a nunnery. These two sons grow up, and they grow up to be great. They get appointed, following their dad's footsteps, joint mayors, joint councils, consuls of Rome in their early 20s. I mean, this is incredible. This guy is just rising to the top. Now, the king, the the Gothic king I told you about, at this time is a guy named Theoderic. Okay? Theoderic. Uh, as opposed to C-Aderic. It's Theoderic. Um, Theoderic is the king. Not Theodoric. Theoderic is the king. Okay? Now, if Theod... This is... I'm trying to think, how do I explain to you the new promotion, okay? Boethius gets promoted from being mayor of Rome, all right? So we're going to go into chess pieces for a minute to try and explain his new job. That is the king, Theoderic, okay? He doesn't get to be king. Boethius doesn't. And Boethius doesn't get to be queen either, okay? It's not that whacked out. All right, here's what happens. He isn't a pawn, he isn't a knight, and he's not even a bishop. But he is at least a rook. And if you play chess, it's the most powerful piece after the king and queen. He becomes number two to the king. His job is master of offices. Doesn't sound like much. We don't have that job now. It's a huge job. Here are some of the things he did. He was in charge of palace discipline. Okay, that's like Constable Ron Hickman on steroids. Okay? It's, like, it's like head of the CIA, the FBI, and the police all rolled into one. That's what his job was. He's not only head of the CIA, the FBI, and, and the army, or not army, the police... But he's also the king's intermediary. You want to see the king? you got to go through Boethius. He keeps the calendar. He sets the schedule. Nobody sees the king unless Boethius says it's okay. That's a pretty big-time job when you roll that into the others. Not only that, he's in charge of public entertainment. 
That means he's, he's setting up the football games. That means when there's a big boxing match, he either himself or gets someone else to drop the mic and say, let's get ready to rumble. I mean, he's the guy who's in charge of these things. All right? He's in charge of foreign relations. All the ambassadors that want to see the king or have issues, they have to go to Boethius. He's in charge of keeping them happy or upsetting them, whatever the king's wishes are. This guy is in charge of negotiating on major documents and translating them into Latin so the king and his people can read them. He's got an incredible job in his early to mid-40s. This guy is about my age, maybe a year or two younger. And this is where he is. He is on top of the world. I mean, he's got it, doesn't he? Now, let me tell you what he does with his leisure time. When he's not having to do all of these things, and even back when he was consul or mayor of Rome, what he would do in his leisure time is he would sit around and pick up his pen and he would write. He loved to write. He loved scholarly things. He had burning within him a desire to teach people. He had a need to see that folks were educated. He looked at his education. It meant the world to him. It was the basis of his life. And he's one of these people that God had a burning desire seared deep in his soul that he couldn't function without trying to help people learn. And um, and he set himself to do it. One of the problems he saw is there are all of these wonderful, cultural, philosophical, smart, great works that are all written in Greek. And nobody's reading Greek anymore. So do you know what he did? He decided, whoops, let's get rid of that. He, Boethius decided... He's going to translate Aristotle into Latin so everybody could read Aristotle because everybody needs to know Aristotle. I got to teach at Northland Christian School last Friday. I taught an entire class on Aristotle. I'm not sure they realize that's what I did, but I taught Aristotle's rhetoric to them, to a debate class, how to speak persuasively, logos, pathos, ethos. I basically took Aristotle's rhetoric and condensed it down to a high school level into one class, and that's what I taught. Boethius translated Aristotle. He wanted to translate all of it, didn't get it done, but he translates it into Latin so that the Latin world would not lose it. Not only Aristotle, but he writes a book on mathematics, taking some of the Greek mathematicians who were the greats and translating and adding to their works to make sure that there's Latin, good, solid textbooks on mathematics. Not only mathematics, but he writes on music. Not only music, he writes on geometry. It was a different subject than mathematics. Not, and it still is by and large today, right? You take algebra, you take geometry. You ever wonder why they're different? Because they've got a different tradition. That's why they don't roll them into one math class even today. We're Western civilization. He writes on astronomy. That's not like horoscopes. That's astrology. This is like stars, planets, okay? Moon, sun. He writes on astronomy. Now, 
when he writes on these, he doesn't write them as a secular guy. I mean, this is a church history class here. This is not the history of education. I bring these up because here's what he says. He says, you can put math on the chalkboard. You can learn about music and musical notes. I'll write on the isosceles triangle and geometry, and I'll write on astronomy. But I am writing on all of these because they are Christian issues. I write on math, on music, on geometry, and on astronomy because it's a Christian issue. I'm going to save this for posterity's sake and I'm going to make sure our civilization and our students can read and understand it even though they don't speak a lick of Greek because it's a Christian issue. Do you know why? Yes. Boethius said, if we understand creation, it helps us understand the Creator. Now this is going to influence C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, his favorite philosopher was Boethius. It was Boethius who helped bring C.S. Lewis to faith. It's going to influence Francis Schaeffer. It's going to influence countless theologians later who say, wait a minute, I'm going to examine the world. And from examining the world, I'm going to get insight in my faith. And when we get to Francis Schaeffer and we get to C.S. Lewis, God willing, and we explain how these men go about helping unbelievers come to faith by explaining the world to them, we'll come back to Boethius. Because Boethius says, if you understand the logic and order of math, you understand that we have a logical and orderly God. If you understand the beauty of music and how it ministers and how it nourishes, you get some of the mystical understanding of how God works in your life. If you understand the principles and dynamics of geometry and building and order and sense, then you get some understanding of how God has built not only uh, uh, His church, but how things are structured and, and how He builds other things. If you understand the astronomy and you see the stars, then you bow down in wonder like David in Psalm 8 who says, What is man that you're... When I consider the heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've established, oh, what is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor and strength to rule over your creation. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He says, you get that when you understand that math and music and geometry and, and the s- heavens are not something totally apart from God. They're expressions of God. And we'll learn them and we'll see them for what they are because when we understand the creation, we better understand the Creator. Pretty incredible. So he writes on these things. But he doesn't just write on them. He also writes on the Trinity. And when he writes on the Trinity, I gave Justin one of the books that I've got on this. It's got the Latin on one side and the English on the other. When he writes on the Trinity, he says, let's use logic. 
Aristotelian, Aristotle's logic. Let's use logic and rationality to understand God. Let's don't make our theology something that, that's just what we feel or what we want or what we inherited. Let's make it something that we think about and something we study and something we learn and something that makes sense. He says, do you know why? And he says, I've been reading Augustine or Augustine, I guess he would say. I've been reading Augustine and I read his work on the Trinity. And by the way, the book that uh, Boethius writes on the Trinity, do you know who he dedicates it to? His father-in-law, yeah, his stepfather, his adopted father. And he says at the beginning, it's touching. He says, you know, I want you to read this stuff, but I don't really talk about this with anybody but you. So I dedicate this to you because you and I have just always connected. So he writes his father's father-in-law, adopted father, whatever we would call him. And he, and he says, here it is. He says, you know, the, the logic behind the Trinity, if you just think of it logically, it's got to be true. What makes something one? What makes something, you know, we say God is one. What makes something one? He says, well, there are three different ways to look at it. You can look at it in terms of genus, like man is one with a horse. They're the same in the sense that we're both animals or living, breathing beings, okay? You could also say that in species, you know, I am the same as Melna. We're the same species. We're both humans. So that makes us one. He says there's also one in the sense of number. I am one entity or one person, just like Lewis is one entity or one person. We're number. Now, we're both one in that sense, yet we're still different. We're still different. He calls it because of accidents, but not in the way we think of accidents. He says it's because you, Lewis, occupy a different space than I do. You have a different genetic makeup than I do, we might say. You have different parents. You have different skin. You have different, you know... Hair, you have, you know, there's just a difference between us. The difference is, 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 uh, the accident. Now he says, with God, God is one. But He's one on all levels. God is of the same genus. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are all of the same genus. They're all the same substance. But they're also all of the same species. And the difference between them and us, and the way we think of it is, there is no accident or no difference in their substance. Even when Jesus is on earth, He's still fully God. Wherever Jesus, God dwells, God Father dwells and God Spirit dwells fully. Wherever God Father is, God Jesus and God Spirit is. There's no difference. And then He starts talking about, yet even still, there within that oneness are entity differences in a sense. And, and it's just, it's a very, and He says, let's use our brains on our religion. That was a novel concept. A lot of people didn't do that. A lot of people don't today. He wrote on the Old Testament. He wrote on the life, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then he wrote on church history. He basically did his version of biblical literacy and church history literacy up to his day. Incredible. And he pushed... Oh, he wrote against Nestorianism. We don't have time for that. We've got to move. He pushed... Logical theology. Here's what Boethius said. Examine these words of mine and if possible, reconcile your faith with reason. Don't come in to study God or to worship God and at the, 
You remember back in the old days, they'd have a, a place to check your hat when you walked into some place? We don't do that much anymore because we don't wear hats. Okay. He had a fear that people were taking off their heads and checking them there. He says, don't come in to study God and leave your brain behind. Don't think that a religion is a blind leap of faith off a cliff just hoping and praying someone is there. Now, he doesn't use that expression. It'll be used later. But that's the thought behind what he says. He says, use your reason. The God who made two plus two equal four doesn't expect you to quit thinking that way when you think about him. Use your brain. And when Boethius writes this way, we're about to enter a thousand years of dark ages. The medieval times. But it's Boethius who has sown the seeds for the Renaissance to bring us out of it. It is Boethius, yes, praise God. It is Boethius who's done the writings that Galileo reads that makes Galileo invent a telescope to look at the heavens. And when the church puts Galileo on trial and people are persecuting Galileo, Galileo is able to say, but Boethius said that we can examine the heavens and learn from God. Queen Elizabeth I in 1600 in England required anyone who worked in her court to read Boethius. Dante, who writes The Inferno, one of the great pieces of literature, his favorite writer, one of them. Boethius, he's immersed in it. Boethius is going, is sowing the seeds in 500 that are going to bring culture out of the dark ages a thousand years later. Now here's the interesting thing. In 523, Boethius is on top of the world. Do you know what happens? There's trouble at work. There's a secretary who starts snipping. Secretary to the king. See, the king's worried because the pope never really embraces the Aryan king. And the Pope starts working with the emperor in the east. And a senator from Rome named Albinus joins in. And King Theoderic thinks this is treason and has a trial and sentences the Roman senator to death without even letting the Roman senator show up in his own defense. Boethius, who's tight with the king, right? He's number two. He goes into the king. He says, time out, bub. Well, not bub. That probably is death sentence. He says, time out, king. He says, time out, king. I've got to tell you, Albinus isn't guilty of treason. He didn't do anything I wouldn't do. King says, really? He says, yeah. King says, okay, then you're guilty of treason too. I never really trusted you. You're from Rome. And you're the guy who wrote against Arianism. Okay, you're sentenced to death too. In comes the father-in-law. Uh, time out, king. My son-in-law hadn't done anything wrong. I'm his adopted father. And he's not treasonous. King says, I'll sentence you to death too. And I've got to tell you, in 524, Boethius has the weight of the world on him as he's imprisoned, in essence, and awaiting execution. And it was then that he wrote his seminal crowning work, the one I got when I was in high school. It's entitled, The Consolation of Philosophy. Here's what happens. 
Boethius is in prison and he is visited in this writing, fictional writing, by Lady Philosophy. And Lady Philosophy comes to him and says, what's, uh, why are you down? What's, what's wrong? And Boethius says, you know, I haven't done anything wrong. And I've honored God with my life and I'm under execution. I'm about to be executed wrongly. I've got sons, I've got a wife, I've got a life. I, I've, and, and all I did was try and come to a godly defense of a godly man. And, I, and I, I haven't done anything wrong. And Lady Philosophy starts asking him questions. And Lady Philosophy asks him this. She says, do you believe that this life consists of just chance events that just happen to happen? Is what's happening in your life just, whoa, look how the dice rolled today. And Boethius answers Lady Philosophy and says, I could never believe of such. In fact, I know that God watches over His creation and the day will never come that sees me abandon that belief. At which point Lady Philosophy says, how can you be so sick at heart when you hold so healthy a belief? If you really believe God controls and watches over, why are you so sick? I love that. How can you be so sick when you hold so healthy a faith, a belief? Okay. Um, You ever heard of Don Quixote? Uh, Dante, uh, not Dante, Cervantes writes of Don Quixote who is waiting death and has this story that comes out of him. Care to guess where Cervantes got his idea from? He was a big reader of Boethius. I've told you about C.S. Lewis. Let me give you some points for home from Boethius. First of all, God works in tragedy. In the life of a seven-year-old boy, he brings something incredible. By the way, Boethius was executed and his father-in-law shortly after him. That's true in the death of a parent. Psalm 68, God says, I'll be father to the fatherless. I'll be husband to the widow. It's true in the storms of life. I don't have the time that I promised a friend I would reserve for this point. So I'm going to tell it to you this way. Psalm 42 and 43 you need to read because it's the psalm you read when you're really down and and lady philosophy needs to visit you and give you a swift kick in the theological pants. Psalm 42 and 43 is one where the the psalmist says, my life is terrible, everything's horrible. And then he asks himself the philosophy question, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you disheartened within me? Put your faith in God, for you will yet trust Him, King and God. Remember all of the things He's done for you. He hasn't ignored you. Remember what it was like to go into His presence and to see Him for all that He is. And the neatest thing to me about Psalm 42 and 43 is after he does that, he says, But I'm still down in the dumps and my life is still terrible. And so he gets the kick in the pants with the exact same lecture again. And a third time. It's as John says in 1 John, don't let your heart condemn you. If you don't feel right about things, get your brain in gear and know what you believe and be convinced that he's able to keep what you've committed to him against that day. Because he is. And he waits on the other side of death. It's not a closed door. It's a glorious place where I can't wait to meet Boethius. Would you pray with me?
Our Father, we thank You for the lessons that You have stored up for us through Your people in the ages. And I pray that You will help us do a good job in this class of learning those lessons and standing on broad shoulders and understanding the shoulders we stand on, not just in our civilization, but in our faith. May we know You more more nearly to what You are. Day by day, Lord, help us to learn more about You and to put it into action in our lives. The Haggadah and the Halakah, as we were discussing this morning with our preacher. In Jesus' name, amen.